Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust." and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Guys, I'm excited to be a part of the Advent series. Chris is really good when he preaches. He he comes up with like the four R's or like the four G's or the four Q's of his sermon, and I'm just not that good at doing that. Uh, This weekend, I wanted to give it a shot, so I came up with the four P's. Uh, I had to get a little bit creative, but this is what I came up with. The first P to this morning is going to be the problem of sin. The second is the promise of the snake crusher. Then the priesthood of his people. I was having a hard time with the fourth one, and I decided to go with the pizza we're eating for lunch. <laughs> My fourth point is I'm going to be hungry later. Uh, chapter one of, of Genesis ends with God creating everything and saying that it is very good. Chapter two ends with Adam and Eve naked in the garden, unafraid in bliss. It is harmony. They are there with God and all is good. There is no sin or suffering in the world. Then we flip over into chapter three, which what we read just now, and sin comes in and everything goes horribly wrong. Adam and Eve disobey God and everything begins to unravel. Genesis 3 shows us that everything that is wrong with the world is because of sin. This is the problem of sin. Now, we, before we dive in, I just want to point out that sin is not a, a hopeless negative. Here's what I mean by that. If you've been around for any period of time, I'm sure you've met somebody, you've, you've heard a preacher, someone who's just like that hyper-conservative, hyper-fundamentalist kind of person that sort of bashes people over their head with their Bibles and makes everyone feel super judged. Uh, for this reason, we get this negative feeling whenever the, the word sin can come up. We're like, oh man, especially if you haven't heard me preach before, you might be thinking like, this dude's 
about to throw the Bible at us. Um, and I get it. Like, we've all been there. Matter of fact, my wife, when we first met her, uh, she was reluctant to step foot in the church for the first time. One of the reasons why is because she had a friend in high school who was a Christian who was, uh, she was super judgy. Now, she was very judgmental. She made Kelly feel uncomfortable. And because of that, she felt like uh, she wasn't good enough or she would be judged. She would feel uncomfortable walking into a church. So uh, this idea of sin makes us at times feel uncomfortable. Nonetheless, sin is critically important to helping us make sense of the world around us. Carl Menninger was this uh, psychiatrist. He graduated from Harvard. Uh, he, was, he lived in World War II time. He was not a Christian, but he wrote a book called What Became of Sin. And in this book, he says that the assumption that there is sin provides the possibility, even an obligation for a cure. What he's saying here is that if you say that there is no sin, then ultimately what you do is you take away the power and the opportunity to do something about what's wrong with the world. If you say there's no sin, for example, you can't say that oppression is wrong because if there's no sin and we're just we're just evolved primordial goo, then we're just fizzing and popping on top of each other. There's no actual right and wrong. The world is just spinning and things are just happening. But if we can admit that there's sin, then we can point to things like the injustices of the world and we can say that's not right and we should do something about that. We have to diagnose the problem properly if we hope to have a cure. Kelly and I, when we were first getting married, uh, one of the best bits of advice we got, I think it was in the book, The Meaning of Marriage by John Piper. I, I'm not sure. It might have been, but it might not have been. And, and it points out that when you're in a moment of conflict, it's so important, it's valuable to remember that you're both sinners trying to figure it out. So we try to apply this to our marriage, right? Like if, if we're in a moment of conflict, if we're disagreeing with each other, then I try to stop and think to myself, okay, I am a sinner. My motives are not always good. What am I not seeing in this situation? What is she feeling or experiencing? And in that same moment, hopefully Kelly's on the other side going, okay, I am a sinner. My motivations are not always pure and good. There's humility in recognizing uh, sin, not just in the world, but in your own heart, in your own lives, it's healthy and good. The second point this morning about the problem of sin is that sin runs deep. Uh, it's not just about what we do, but often the motivations that we have. And this is my final point before we dive into the text. Uh, and I think it's just it's important for us to be able to lay this foundation. Foundation. So there was a man named Jonathan Edwards. He was a philosopher and a theologian. As a matter of fact, he's known widely as one of the greatest philosophers and theologian in our day. He went to Yale University before he turned 13 years old. The only thing I did good at 13 was play like Goldeneye really well. That's about it. Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, as, as he's looking at virtue, virtue is uh, us doing good things, us being morally good. So Jonathan Edwards looks at virtue and he says, there's common virtue and there's true virtue. Most of us, most of the time, are acting out of common virtue. Common virtue means that we, we respond, we do good out of fear or pride, right? So why don't, let's take for example, why don't we lie more than we actually do, okay? 
we don't lie more than we actually do out of fear or pride. Either fear that we're going to get caught and there's a consequence, or pride because we, we care about what people think of us. Right? So we're motivated. The reason why we do good at times is fear and pride. It's how we control our lives. And this isn't always bad. This is, again, how the world functions. Here's the problem, though. If it's true that we lie out of fear and pride, I'm sorry, if it's true that we do not lie out of fear and pride, then why is it that we do lie? What motivates us to lie? It's the same motivation. It's fear and pride, right? We lie to, to protect who we are, to protect how people perceive us to be, or to stop bad things from happening around us. So, so we are motivated by fear and pride either to not lie or to lie. On the other hand, we have true virtue. True virtue is being good for goodness sake. True virtue is, is looking at God and seeing that he speaks truth, and so therefore I want to be a truth speaker. Being, being, having true virtue is looking at God and saying he is loving and sacrificial, and therefore I want to be loving and sacrificial. This is important. It's important to recognize that we're motivated often by the sin of fear and pride or the desire for power. And, and it's okay to realize like, okay, yeah, I, I tend to do morally good things because it benefits me, not just because they're good things to do. That's a good place to be. What that allows us to do, to, it allows us to start to look to Jesus as our Savior. You see, once we see that we're motivated often in our lives by fear and pride, then we can look to Jesus because only in Jesus can we put to death both fear and pride. Fear because we know that he has forgiven us and pride because we know we needed a savior. This, this unleashes in us the ability to be virtuous people out of just joy and peace and comfort and rest. This is, this is the process of being a Christian, right? Is to recognize this and then to slowly distill or purify our lives from bad motivations. Moving forward in confidence, knowing that Jesus loves us, that he's forgiven us. So in summary, sin is not a hopeless negative. It helps us make sense of the world. We're all guilty. We've all diagnosed the problem. The problem of the world is sin, but how bad is it? It's like figuring out you have cancer, right? How, how bad? What stage are we at on this? To figure that out, let's reread Genesis 3, verse 7 to 24. And as I do that, I'm just going to point out some things that start to go disarray. Because God has created the world good and beautiful, and everything seems to be working right, and now things are starting to fall apart. So let's see what starts falling apart because of this. Then the eyes of both were open. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They know they're naked. There's shame. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. Now they're separating themselves from God among the trees of, of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid there's fear, because I was naked, shame, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, 
What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed you are above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between the offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise his heel. Sorry, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. There's sickness coming into the world. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire should be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's that power struggle between man and woman. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now the, now the world itself is in turmoil. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it. You were taken for dust for you are dust and to dust. You shall return. There's death. The man called him his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. It just, it all goes wrong. In verse seven, we have shame. We've got the power struggle between man and woman in verse 12, 13, and 16b. Like God's saying, like, you guys are going to be fighting over each other, over power and control. We've got destruction and division between us and God. This is telling us that sin affects every dimension of life. This is stage five. Timothy Keller says it like this. He says that creation was, was designed like a beautiful clock that's working well together. And it's telling time perfectly well. And at one point, man decides that he does not want to be a cog in the clock anymore. So he jumps off the tracks. And once he does, everything goes terribly wrong. The clock stops working. It stops telling time. Smoke starts coming out of it. Oil starts spilling. There's a man named William uh, George Whitfield, and he put it this way. He said that, I'm looking for the quote. Do you know, he, asked, he said this, do you know why the beasts bark at you? Why the birds screech? Because they know you have a quarrel with their master. Romans 8, 22 and 23 says it like this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for redemption. It is cosmic chaos. Yet, in the middle of this hopelessness, God gives us a small sign of hope. In the middle of our rebellion, God is working out redemption. Look again to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here is God in the middle of the curse. He makes a promise. He promises that a descendant of Adam and Eve is coming, and this descendant is going to be a snake crusher. 
He's going to be the one who turns everything around, who makes all wrong things right. Look again at Genesis 3.21. And the, Lord, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. I think if you ask most people what the first death, what the first shedding of blood is in the Bible, they would probably say Cain and Abel. But as it turns out, that's not true. Here is Adam and Eve. They see themselves as naked and afraid. And they put together a pathetic wardrobe. They like take some leaves and they try to cover themselves, but it's not working. They do not have the power, ability to hide, to cover their shame and sin. So God, the first death in scripture tells us that God takes the life of an animal, takes that and uses the skin to clothe Adam and Eve. In the middle of them rebelling against God, God is working to cover their sin, to cover their shame. So we get these two promises. We get this promise of a snake crusher and this idea of some sacrifice, a blood sacrifice that was coming to make all wrong things right. Now that sacrifice wouldn't be the last sacrifice. Matter of fact, uh, the Jewish people for, for a very long time, for thousands of years, would celebrate what's called Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. So here's what happens. In Israel, in Jerusalem, there's this high priest. And the priests, throughout most of the year, their responsibility is to take care of the needs of the people. So if there's an orphan in need or a widow in need, the priest would come and take care of their needs, right? They're there to serve out mercy, mercy and justice. But on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest... He gets the, the purest lamb in the land. Everybody comes into Jerusalem. They pile into the city for this one day. It's actually more like five days of praying and fasting. The high priest takes a lamb. He would wrap a red ribbon around the lamb's head. He would then lay his hands on top of this lamb, and he would pray. And he would ask God that the sins of the world, the sins of the people that were watching Jerusalem, would be placed upon this lamb. When he was done praying, he would have someone take the lamb and lead them out into the wilderness. So there was this, this procession going on. You'd see this lamb leaving, and the people of Israel would watch this thing go, and they would think to themselves, that scapegoat has my sins. There goes the sins of the world. God often does this. He, he creates these symbols in the Old Testament, these signs, uh, and he's preparing his people for what's about to happen. He's preparing them for a snake crusher. He's preparing them for what we call a substitutionary atonement, for a true lamb, a true fat sacrifice that will take away the sins of the world. And so 2,000 years ago, a baby is born. He's born in one of the most unorthodox ways. He's born in a manger to a virgin teenage mom. But this baby, it turns out, isn't any ordinary baby. This is the snake crusher of Genesis 3. This is the high priest of Yom Kippur and the scapegoat that has come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is our high priest that will one day, as he did on the cross, stand before God and say, forgive them. Our sins have separated us from God. It's caused, it's caused destruction and chaos into the world. But through the work of Jesus on the cross, he reconciles us back to God. He's the one that, that brings us back into right relationship with our creator. So if that's true, 
If that's the purpose of the high priest, we no longer need him on Yom Kippur, right? Because the final sacrifice has come. The true high priest is here. But what about the other responsibility of the high priest? The other responsibility of the high priest throughout the year, again, was to serve out mercy and justice, to help those in need. So what happens to that? Let's look at 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and then 9 and 10. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual sacrifice to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now, now you've received mercy. Friends, as Jesus works to reconcile us back to himself, he calls us, his royal priesthood, his royal family, to work out reconciliation, to work out justice and mercy in our lives, in our lives as individuals, but also in the lives of the people around us. This is what he's doing when he calls a people to him. He's calling to himself a royal priesthood that's going to go out and show the world what justice and mercy and kindness and love looks like. Now, I want this to land home. So there's three ways in which we can be that royal priesthood of 1 Peter. The first way is we can actively, Chris and I like to say, we, we try to preach the gospel to ourselves in our daily lives. We can actively remind ourselves that we have no reason to have fear or, fear or pride because Jesus has died for us. So we can move forward humbly in our lives, admitting and confessing sin and, and trying to love and be merciful and kind instead of digging our heels in out of pride. So preach the gospel to yourself. The second thing is fill the needs of your neighbor. You heard Chris say, we planted this church for the good of our neighbors. So let's be good to our neighbors. I would say for you right now, who in your life do you, do you think is in need of uh, just spending time with? Like text them, take them out to coffee, or maybe they need something else. Maybe they need help around the house. Think of someone in this week, give it a shot. The third thing is uh, I would encourage you to pray more for people. I am, like, if I died today, I would not, on my tombstone, it would not say he was a prayer warrior. I suck at praying. Uh, my, I pray morning and night, and I pray throughout my day, but they're repetitious, and, and they're about me, or they're theological in nature. They're boring. I sound like an idiot. But uh, what I've been doing lately is praying more for people, praying more for the people around me. Um, spending less time praying about myself and thinking about the people who are hurting spiritually, physically, or emotionally, and I'm just spending time uh, lifting them up in prayer in my life. And it's been good. It's been encouraging. It's revitalized my prayer life recently. I'm, I'm praying with more passion and emotion, and I feel myself thinking about people and reaching out to them a little bit more. So I would encourage you guys to try to spend a little bit more time in prayer for others. Um, my daughter Madison, who's here this morning, uh, she's always been an incredible big sister. Um, and 
I just remember this one time, Levi was like just over one. It's like at that stage where they've got like these short little chubby arms and like the big diaper butt, they kind of look like Tyrannosaurus Rexes. That's like one of my favorite cutest stages. So it's also like the time where they're just barely learning how to talk and you can hardly understand them. Um, and so Levi comes to me, he's got like this car in his hand. He's like, blah, blah, da, da, ka, ka. And I'm like, I, I don't know what you're saying, but you look super cute. And he's like getting frustrated. He's like, blah, blah, da, da, ka, ka. And so Madison, she's playing with her own toys. She puts her stuff down. She walks over to me and she's like, dad, he's saying that his car needs new batteries. And Levi's like, that's exactly how I said it. In that moment, in that moment, Madison is acting out her priestly duties. She's putting something down, going out of her way in the middle of the day, and making the needs of her brother known to a father that could do something about it. My last point is this. God is inviting us to be a part of his big, beautiful story of redemption. There's, a, there's this narrative happening in our culture. It's been going on for a while now. And it's, we've talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago. It's like this be yourself mentality. It's this be an autonomous, be the king of your own kingdom, be an autonomous individual, shed off everything that anybody's ever said about you, uh, and go and, and find your way in the world and be an autonomous individual. Here's what's happening. This, this idea of autonomy, it's not working. It's a bankrupt idea. Like if you look around, the more we try to be the kings of our own kingdom, the more depression and anxiety continue to increase around us, right? We, we, I mean, if you think about it, like we're, we're desiring for autonomy and yet the desire for community, the lack of authentic, true, life-giving community continues to bubble up. People are desperately in need of community as they seek out autonomy, which that makes sense. Actually, so I think, I think every now and then we get these cultural artifacts that are just prime examples of where we're at and how we think. And I think Let It Go, the song in Frozen, is a, is a great cultural artifact for our culture. Here's why. I know you know the song. Sean's like singing it right now. Here's why. In every Disney movie, there's a bad guy song. Uh, Jafar's got his song and Scar's got his song, right? In Frozen, the bad guy song is Let It Go. But interestingly, it's the only bad guy song that we sing and celebrate day in and day out. And it is certainly a bad guy song, because if you think about it, like she's singing about letting it go and removing herself out of community and separating herself from family. At the end of the song, she gets her dress, yes, but she ends up in a frozen castle, cold and alone and isolated from the one who loves her unconditionally, the true hero of the story, Anna. This is, this is that this autonomous individual idea that's happening in our community, in our culture today, but it's isolating us. It's making us feel alone. And I think, I think the truth of the gospel, the truth that we're made to be a part of God's big, beautiful story, that it's not about us and our story, but it's about God and his story. I think that truth is calling us home. It's calling us to be a part of something. So we'll end with this. There's a, there's a band named Fleet Foxes. They're, a, they're not a Christian band. They're an alternative rock band from Seattle. They're great. They've won a few awards. 
and the lead singer has, has admitted to struggling with depression and anxiety. And, and uh, so he writes in this song, uh, Helpless Blues, Helplessless Blues. Here's what he says. He's haunted by this truth. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. The good news for us is that that's true. There is this big, beautiful story of redemption and God is calling us. He's inviting us to play an important role in his story. And he's telling us that we get to do that together as a community. So let's do that. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.